Now what's the word? Democracy. What's the word? Democracy. Yeah, what's the word? Democracy. Yeah, what's the word? Democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. The seeds you sow spread democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. Welcome everyone to Election Connection with me, your host, Ruth Newman, on this public interest, all volunteer community radio station, WFMP 106.5 FM. And today we are honored to have as our special guest, Joshua A. Douglas, professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law. He's co-author of an election law casebook, co-editor of Election Law Stories, and his commentaries have appeared in the New York Times, USA Today, CNN, Reuters, Washington Post, and other media outlets. And we are here today to talk about his latest book, which is Vote for U.S. Is that right? Vote for U.S. Or vote for us. It's a a purposeful play on words. I see. Very good. And then the subtitle is How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. So it's so good to have you here on Election Connection, Professor Douglas. I was going to start out and ask you to explain what it was that either inspired and or alarmed you that you decided to write this book on making voting more popular with and more accessible to valid voters in America. Well, first, thanks, Ruth, for having me. It's always great to support local radio, all-volunteer radio. Um, These sorts of programs are the lifeblood of our democracy, right, where people are coming together to become more informed, um, to discuss important issues. You know, democracy doesn't work unless we all are invested, and this sort of program, I think, really speaks to that. Um, So you asked about my book, Vote for Us, uh, or Vote for U.S. I typically say vote for us because I like the communal aspect uh, of that. And, you know, it's a book that is about good news in voting rights. And when I tell people I wrote a book that's got a bunch of good news in voting rights, they typically think it's just a page long because, you know, there's not a lot, of, not a lot to talk about. Uh, so how could I write a whole book about it? Um, and that's kind of one of the inspirations for writing is that um, there's so much doom and gloom out there about the state of our democracy, about the state of voting rights, uh, and justifiably so. There's a lot of things to be concerned about. But, but my question or my concern is that if we solely wallow in the doom and gloom, then I think there's a tendency to throw up our hands and say, well, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. The system is, is rigged against us. Uh, and so we can just retreat into our corners or our houses and our lives. Uh, and, and, you know, politics is, is just going to be political anyways. But instead, there's actually a lot of really great, really inspiring stories out there that tell about amazing people doing great work to make our election system more inclusive, more democratic. And, and I wanted to tell those stories. And now um, I also was wondering, you know, there is this tension that we have in our country and, and 
in most cases, the Republicans side with the integrity part of that tension. They feel that there's a, there's a tendency for voter fraud. And so they wanna go on to that side of the spectrum of protecting election integrity. And then we have other people, mostly Democrats, saying we need to, to open up and, and allow more valid voters the ease of voting that they don't have right now. So I'm just um, wondering if you could explain some of that tension that there's this push-pull going on in the country right now, and, and we seem to be siding in terms of political parties. Yeah, I mean, you're right that there, there, this common sentiment uh, among many people is that there you can either be for voting access. Uh, if you are, then you don't care about the potential of fraud and or vice versa. If you're only worried about fraud, then you don't care about the voters. Um, I don't think that's actually true, though, in that voter access and election integrity don't need to be mutually exclusive. That is to say, we can pass policies that focus on both. But we have to be truthful about the effects of various policies and what we're trying to achieve. Um, so on the one hand, voter fraud is not a major problem, right? That's not to say that it never exists. There's always isolated incidences, incidents, um, but it is not a major problem that we need to address. People cry wolf about it all the time. You know, I've got young kids and they'll say, you know, they might be scared there's a monster under the bed. And no matter how many times I look under the bed, the bed to look for a monster, you know, they're not there. And as much as I tell them, I keep looking, they still sometimes don't believe me because it's hard to prove a negative. Uh -huh. But I'm here to say that people have been looking for years uh, and looking very hard for this massive voter fraud and they can't find anything. It's because it doesn't exist on a widespread scale. At the same time, isolated incidents do occur, right? And then we also have to worry about the access portion of this in that um, there is a real problem for some people to jump through various hoops like a strict photo ID requirement. But at the same time, I think the, le the political left maybe embellishes some of those hurdles. And what we see in Kentucky is that uh, because we work together in a bipartisan manner, and I've got to give a lot of credit to Secretary of State Michael Adams, uh, who's really set the right tone, that we can achieve both improved access and enhanced integrity at the same time. It's not to say that Kentucky's elections are perfect by any means. You know, we have a, re a voter registration deadline that's four weeks before election day. That's way too early. And, and Secretary Adams agrees. We we have our polls open only from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. We just thankfully uh, added three days of early voting. Um, so we're not a model of, of everything to do right. But I think we are a model in terms of how to achieve bipartisan agreement where we look to compromise and we focus on, okay, what sorts of policies can achieve both voter access, improved voter access, and integrity. And just real quick, as an example, three days of early voting does both because it makes it obviously easier for people to vote. It gives them more choices, but it also eases the lines on election day. And what does that mean? It means that the poll workers and election officials can watch the process more carefully because they're not managing the line so much. So you can, you can understand how some of these reforms are both integrity measures and access measures at the same time. That's good. But we still now need to present voter ID with a photo. Is that right? Well, sort of. So Kentucky, again, I think a really great model of how to do this right. You know, I'm opposed to photo ID requirements, strict photo ID requirements, because they don't really do anything to, to prohibit fraud that actually exists. Right? The only type of 
voter fraud and ID law could prevent is in-person impersonation, right? Someone showing up to the polls and pretending they're someone they're not. And that just doesn't happen. And by the way, it doesn't happen in part because you'd be a really stupid way to try to throw an election, right? If you wanted to throw an election, you wouldn't do it by individual voters going and pretending someone they're not to be someone they're not because you're likely to get caught and you need a whole lot of people involved to actually swing enough votes to make sure you, you did enough to win. So it, it'd just be a stupid yeah. way to, to engage in some sort of fraud. So it doesn't happen on that big of a scale. But obviously, the political right believes that photo ID laws are important uh, in, in shoring up the election system. So what we did in Kentucky is passed a law that's really mild. Now, it does require a photo ID to present at the polls, but lots of things count, including student IDs, including uh, IDs that have expired. It doesn't matter what the expiration date or even if it, does, if it has an expiration date at all. None of that stuff matters. Uh, and also, if you show up to the polls and you don't have an ID, you can fill out an affidavit under penalty of perjury saying why you don't have an ID and then vote a regular ballot like everybody else. Um, some states make you vote what's called a provisional ballot if you don't have an ID. You show up to the polls, you don't have an ID, you can fill out a form, but then you set you fill out a, a provisional ballot that gets set aside and then only will be counted if you go back to the county clerk's office within a few days of the election. In Kentucky, we compromise to say, no, if you show up without an ID, you can vote a regular ballot as long as you fill out the, the affidavit. Um, again, this is both access and integrity working at the same time. So the, the technical rules are now you do need a photo ID, although again, lots of kinds of IDs count under the law. And also if you don't have an ID, uh, there are fail-safe mechanisms. And also, by the way, the third thing is uh, a lot of people in rural counties use personal recognizance. They know the poll workers and the law retained that mechanism to check in as well. I called uh, the Board of Elections yesterday and I spoke to somebody who refused to give me her whole name because I think she didn't want to promise anything. But first of all, she said that if you have a student ID that does not have a photo, it does not count. That's correct. The IDs still require photos, but I think most universities in the Commonwealth have IDs with a photo. But again, the expiration date, there doesn't need to have an expiration date listed whatsoever. And is it true the only place that you can go to get a photo ID is the Department of Motor Vehicles? Is that true? Well, I mean, again, you can get it from your university. Okay. Uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles, you can get a driver's license or you can get a non-driver's license ID. And it has to be free of charge. They can't charge you for that. So yeah, those are the places that issue... Uh, IDs. But really, I mean, so it's, you know, any state agency that, uh, or federal agency that issues an ID with your name and picture will suffice under Kentucky law. Because uh-huh. I know that when I went to the Department of Motor Vehicles, I went to their website, drive.ky.gov, there was nothing on there about voter ID. All it said was driver licensing service options. And uh, I went around and around and around. I did find at the bottom of one of the screens that it said voter and homeless ID cards are not able to renew online, of course, but I didn't see anything about voter ID. I called them up about that, too, and I complained. 
Yeah, are you looking? I mean, I'm taking a glance here right now yeah. as we're chatting. You know, the, the website certainly could be clearer, but you know, you could also call your county clerk, and they would be able to direct you as to how to to get a qualifying uh, photo ID. Again, it doesn't have to be a driver's license. Well, and it's one of the things that we looked at in in um, uh, debating the the photo ID law back in 2020. Uh, you know, virtually all Kentucky voters have an ID. Uh -huh. And if they don't have an have an ID already, and if, and one that would comply with the law, and if they don't have an ID, that's why we included this failsafe that you can fill out the form at the polls and vote a regular ballot like everybody else. So I, you know, I do think that the photo ID law should not deter anyone from voting. I mean, if there's one really the one negative aspect of it is this, I think, heightened concern that's probably too heightened about you know the the disenfranchising effect or potential effect of the law. Uh, in Kentucky, it's a mild enough law that no one should be turned away from the polls. No one would be turned away from the polls for not having an ID. So if there's one negative aspect, it's that there's, I think, too much hype uh, or too much concern from people that it is going to stop people from voting. It's only going to stop you from voting if you decide not to show up. Uh, we, we added enough things in the law. That's why I'm happy. I was proud to work on the law, even though, again, I oppose photo ID laws. I think they're not necessary, but the flavor we have in Kentucky made it such that no one would be turned away or, or you know it's hard to think of an example of someone who either doesn't have an id and also couldn't fill out the form saying why they don't have an id and uh so don't don't think of the fact that we have an id law as something that should deter you from showing up to the polls now you also spoke about uh, gerrymandering in your book and you mentioned the state of michigan that there are attempts in the state of michigan to create a nonpartisan redistricting commission. Just curious to know the status of that is, have, have they succeeded? Yeah, it's a really great story, right? So uh -huh. this is an example where a young woman posted on Facebook the, shortly after the 2016 election saying, hey, I'm thinking of taking on gerrymandering in Michigan. Anyone want to help? And she was thinking about Thanksgiving dinner coming up and how she sort of couldn't bear, she's a very political family, but she had some family members who were Trump supporters, some who were Bernie Sanders supporters, some Hillary Clinton. And, and she was like, what's the issue that we can bring everybody together that kind of everyone hates? And she realized it was gerrymandering. And when she posted that, she thought that maybe some friends or family members would respond that they all go find a group together to join. But what happened is that lots of people responded and many were like, okay, where do I send money or where do I go or what do I do? And she realized basically she needed to create the organization herself. So she created this group called Voters Not Politicians. The name of the group I think says it all, right? The voters should choose, who should choose the politicians and not the other way around. Uh -huh. um, and they got an initiative on the ballot to amend the state constitution and create this independent redistricting commission. And specific to your question, uh, what we've seen now since we just have gone through a round of redistricting is it really worked. Um, the map that the independent redistricting commission passed is by many considered one of the fairest maps that Michigan has seen. Uh -huh. It you, has representation or districts based on you know where people live in natural bound boundaries, not crazy lines intending to produce a particular result. Um, I can't say we did as well in Kentucky, uh, and the <laughs> map yeah. is subject to litigation, right? It's still going through yeah. the court system. Yeah. Uh, while the Michigan map, um, you know, actually there were challenges to the existence of the commission, but they all failed because they amended the state constitution to uh to create this commission and and the results you know we're going to have an election in a few weeks in michigan that is going to be you know on a much fairer map than they've had in in years and something that you said in your book that really excited me on the one hand was uh starting 
at the grassroots where there's less gridlock, that you use localities as democracy labs. And I've tried that in the past when it comes to clean elections. I've spoken to my Metro Council people and they all throw up their hands and they say, no, we have no authority in the municipality. Everything is controlled by Frankfurt. So when it comes to clean elections or if it comes to redistricting, if we wanted to do it on a local level or lowering the age to 16, like you mentioned in your book, we don't have that option here on a grassroots level, do we, in, in the state of Kentucky? Well, I think that's that's probably true. I say probably because the the law doesn't explicitly say that municipalities don't have the power to do local election reform. And I actually thought there was a decent argument that they could until the Kentucky Supreme Court struck down Louisville's uh, minimum wage law a few years ago. You know, Louisville passed a, a, a raise the minimum wage in the city um, and it got struck down and said, you know, and the court said that municipalities don't have the power to do this. It has to be at the state level. And before that case came down, I thought there was a really good argument under the existing law and the constitution that localities should have the ability and, and do, do have the ability to change their local rules. I think that Kentucky Supreme Court case did close the door um, although it was about minimum wage, I think it applies to election rules as well, probably. What does this mean is that, you know, the legislature could pass a law not to impose or not to engage in the substantive questions, you know, the clean elections or whatever, lowering the voting age, ranked choice voting, whatever it may be. It could, the legislature could simply just give the power to localities to do it, right? Just say for local specific elections, you have the authority to, you know, change your election rules. Uh, I think that'd be a really smart thing to do. And it, I think there's a compelling argument to do it for Republicans who control the state legislature, who are all about small government. And, you know, this idea of federalism, that the power should be devolved to the entities closest to the people, where local governments are, are entities closest to the people. And so I think there is a conservative argument to be made that the legislature should pass a law in Kentucky that gives localities the power to engage in local election reforms, just like they have in, in a bunch of other states. We'd have to have some someone in Frankfurt who would interested in passing that law, but I think it would be a really good idea. And uh -huh. then across the Commonwealth could experiment with different voting rules for their local elections. Do you have any thoughts on how somebody here locally might just do something that could get their foot in the door, get a local foot in the door of uh, opening things more up? for participation? Well, I mean, there's a couple things you can do, but, you know, one is you could contact your state legislator and tell them that, you know, you're not looking for them to change the law statewide on one of these issues, but you want to give the localities, you know, more uh, authority. Also, you know, I think just literally voting in local elections is really important because our turnout numbers are pathetic by and large. And as you go down the ballot, it gets worse and worse. Um, and, you know, so don't ignore those mayoral and city council races because, you know, they do make a difference. City, every city council in the state went through a redistricting um, where they redrew their city council lines. That's something you can have an effect on to make sure it's done fairly. Um, so there's still a role to play for people at the grassroots level, even if currently localities can't change election laws for their own elections. And could you uh, explain what you mean by ranked choice voting? So this is a system of voting that's used in a lot of places 
where instead of choosing one candidate, you rank order your preferences. So you say, I like candidate A first, but if candidate A doesn't win, I'd like candidate B. And if candidate B doesn't win, I'd like candidate C. Um, you know, we do this all the time. I open the chapter in my book talking about how I love ice cream and my favorite flavor is mint chocolate chip. But if I show up to the ice cream shop and they're out of mint chocolate chip, I don't just leave and not get ice cream. Like that would be crazy. I'd get my second choice flavor. We all have choices. The Academy Awards uses ranked choice voting to select the best picture. So the voters rank order their favorite movies uh, in order of preference. And the way the counting works is that after all the votes are tallied, you rank order your ballot, say who I want first, second, third, et cetera. You can rank just one, just why I only like one person and put them first. You can rank all the candidates. You can rank half the candidates. And then after the count is done, then the first round, you look at who received the fewest first place votes and that person is eliminated. And all of those ballots are then redistributed to the, the second choice on the ballot. And you do it again and see who's in last place, redistribute the ballots, whoever's on next on, on those ballots until you have uh, 50%, uh, one candidate with 50%. Um, mm -hmm. And why this, is, this makes sense is that it means that even if it wasn't their first choice, someone voted for that person and a majority of people voted for that person, whether it's their first, second, third choice, et cetera. A bunch of cities use this already. San Francisco started using it in uh, 2002. Actually, Cincinnati used to use it in like the 30s or 40s and then stopped because the, the new voting machines back then couldn't figure it out, basically. <laughs> uh, San Francisco has used it, Minneapolis, Minnesota and St. Paul, Portland, Maine. Um, and now some states are using it. So this is how Maine elects their representatives. Alaska uses a, a system where the primary, uh, you vote whoever you want, and the top four then move on to the general election, and you rank order between one and four. Um, and Nevada voters will vote this fall as to whether to adopt ranked choice voting for Nevada elections as well. Could you talk a little bit about universal mail-in voting? Because if I understand you correctly, if we had universal mail-in voting, we would not need polling stations. That's generally correct. I mean, you know, every place that has uh, universal mail-in voting will still allow some in-person voting for you know voters with disabilities who need it, right? So you can go still go to the county clerk's office to cast a ballot in person if you know you have a particular need. But basically, what this means is that the entire election system is done via the mail. So. There's different flavors of it, but uh, in a state like Oregon, for example, that pioneered it, every registered voter automatically receives the ballot. You don't need to request it. You know, you don't need to do anything. The ballot shows up and then you fill it out and then you deliver it, return it. So, and, and about half the people put it back in the mail, but actually half the people tend to drop it off in a Dropbox and they like being able to personally deliver it into a Dropbox. There's an organization called Vote at Home, which they like the term vote at home better because that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're, it's being delivered to you via the mail, but you're voting at home and then delivering it back however you want. And one of the most amazing things about this system is that it improves turnout tremendously and doesn't introduce fraud into the system. And this has been studied in places like Oregon and places like Washington State that, that have been using this system. They have a vigorous signature match to make sure that the person, just like absentee voting for us, you know, your signature is matched. And they actually, in Oregon, they train their election workers with experts in forensic handwriting. So it can teach them, you know, because people think my signatures have changed, whatever. But I guess there's these experts in, in handwriting that can tell the difference and figure out if it's a valid signature or not. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, almost all ballots are delivered via the mail and it's so much more convenient for voters and it really improves turnout. And oh, I would imagine a whole lot cheaper. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, the, the initial startup costs for a state doing this, are, are, there's a little bit higher on the initial costs. You got to think about postage, uh, et cetera. But once you get the system set up, the, the future costs are much cheaper because you don't have as many polling places, you don't have as many poll workers, et cetera. And so in the long run, it is a lot cheaper. There are startup costs at the beginning that are important to consider. Okay. And what about the, uh, the argument that you cannot supervise to see whether people are being forced to vote a certain way in mail-in voting? Well, you can't do that in absentee voting like we have in Kentucky, and no one seems to think that we need to get rid of absentee voting. That's true. Right? So I think it's a, it's one of these boogeyman uh, arguments that uh, there's no evidence to support the concern. You know, lots of things are hypothetical, right? It's also hypothetical that Martians come down to the earth and hijack our election. The question is, is there something that's actually occurring that can impact you know, our elections? And of course, unduly influencing someone to vote a certain way is a crime and people are watching for it. And mm -hmm. so if you start seeing some weird trends, like this happened in 2018 in North Carolina, where the Board of Elections in a congressional election saw some really weird trends about how the absentee votes were going. And, you know, from from neighborhoods that were voting for one candidate in uh, the in-person vote, but completely opposite the absentee ballots. And so they said, well, this just doesn't look right. And so they started looking into it and they found fraud. They found that there was someone going door to door, basically coercing them to help fill out. And it was a Republican operative and coercing people to help fill out their absentee ballots. Right. So and that person was prosecuted. So, you know, we're watching for this. Now, can we promise that, you know, some parent or or boss or someone is going to, you know, unduly coerce someone to vote a certain way? No, but we can't do that now for absentee voting. And no one thinks we should get rid of that. Or very few people thinks we should think we should get rid of all absentee voting. Because of course, you know, military voters who are not mm -hmm. uh, in their home states should have the right to vote just as everybody else. Right. And if you did have universal mail-in, that would, of course, put a big pressure on, on the post office in a few days time. And I'm wondering, has there been any data in Oregon or Washington about what happens if something gets lost in the mail or gets delivered too late in the mail? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good question. So first, it's usually not a couple of days. It's a couple of weeks where they mail out the ballot. Um, there was a lot of litigation in 2020 about the delivery, um, you know, ballots showing up late with the slowdowns in the Postal Service, which is why some people chose to deliver their ballots in person. Uh, the other important thing is that the ballots have a tracking, a barcode for tracking. So um, kind of like, you know, when you get a, a, a package from the Postal Service or FedEx or UPS, you can track where it is in the system. Voters can track that. Uh, Colorado is another, another state that does this really well. And you can track where your ballot is in the system. So if for some reason, come election day, it hasn't been processed or, you know, the day before, you can contact the county clerk and, and try to see what, what's going on. So, you know, yes, that's something logistically that needs to be figured out and, and worked through the system. But, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that election experts are acutely attuned to. In 2020, there's a lot of concern about ballots showing up late. And it turns out that in the end, not a lot actually did show up late. Uh, some did, of course, but not a ton. And I think it's partially because there was a lot of attention to this very problem. Uh-huh. I, I personally am very interested in clean elections. It seems to me that that's a really good solution to all the money that goes into politics. But um, somebody was saying to me that clean elections, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, 
is too hard to police. It's just too complex for it to have good, high integrity. But it seems to me that there are a lot of examples throughout the country where clean elections do work. Do you know of any? Well, it really depends on what you mean by clean elections. That's a big, a big um, umbrella term for lots of different kinds of campaign finance reforms, uh-huh. right? So, you know, if you're talking about public financing, because that can take away the private money, I think that's been very successful in places like New York City. Seattle has a democracy vouchers program where the city sends out four $25 vouchers for voters or individuals to give to candidates, and then the candidates can cash them in. So you can give all four to one candidate or spread them out. And what it does is it reduces the amount of, of private money that a candidate needs to run. Now, it is true that you know money like water is going to find its way through a system, um, but you can also set up mechanisms to discourage the use of, of private money. And, and that means that those candidates are much less beholden to their donors. So Uh, You know, I find the public financing options. Now, one problem is they have to be voluntary. Under the U.S. Supreme Court's case law, you can't force someone to take public financing, which means that, you know, even a candidate in New York who's going to take public money and and there's a big match that the government provides might be going up against a wealthy candidate who's privately funding themselves. And there's really nothing you can do about that. But you can try to increase the positive incentives to take public money. And I think we've seen... Uh, you know, we've seen more diverse candidates of different backgrounds jumping into races because they have the ability to take the public financing. And and a lot of them, you know, it's not always, but a lot of them will win, do win. And so there is skepticism just because I think in part the U.S. Supreme Court's case mm-hmm. law that really does open the floodgates of, of money. But there are things you can do like public, public financing to really incentivize people mm-hmm. to use those public funds instead of the private funds. And, and it was my understanding that if you run on a clean elections banner, that then that will go on the ballot so that people voting, even though maybe your opponent has way more money than you do, but when your name appears on the ballot, it, it says that you are a clean elections candidate. I can't think of a state where that occurs. And I'm skeptical just because also um, there was um, a whole push of for term limits um, a couple decades ago. And there was a state, I think it was Colorado, that was going to put on the ballot whether each candidate pledged to abide by term limits. And the U.S. Supreme Court struck that down and said that you can't use the ballot as advertising. So I actually don't know that there are any... Mm-hmm places that will put a, um, a notification of a clean elections candidate. Hmm. Unless, you know, if, it, if, if there were, I would suspect it'd be challenged and be struck down hmm. under uh, the Supreme Court case called huh. Greylock. Okay. I had another question about automatic voter reg- registration. If I read your book right, which I may not have, what I thought I saw was that that automatic voter registration uses the DMV records in order to register people. But that made me wonder about non-drivers because not everyone drives, not everyone has a driver's license. Yeah, I mean, so of course you can still, you can just register like normal, right? Like mm-hmm. anybody else could go on to the, and contact them. This is just the automatic part. There are states that are looking at other agencies to see if they can use those databases as well. So they started with DMV records, but I know there's a, an effort to use other government agencies that have people's information. It's got to be accurate, of course, uh-huh, um, right. to then speak to the voter registration list. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you're not on the voter rolls. It just means that your name's not going to get captured automatically through the DMV. And you know the, the normal way of registering is mm-hmm. still valid. 
Right. Well, I had another question about your statement, democracy is a muscle. And that I really like that idea, that it's something that we have to exercise. And I was going to ask you, during non-election cycles, do you have any ideas of how the general public can be encouraged to exercise that muscle? Yeah, I mean, election laws are passed not during election cycles or as the election is pending. So, you know, in Frankfurt, in early 2023, there's going to be some election laws that are before the legislature. And this is where, you know, it makes sense to call your state senator or state uh, member of the House and provide input on what those election laws should be. Because, you know, those laws are, you know, people aren't paying attention and they get passed in February of 2023. And all of a sudden they're being implemented in November and people are, you know, saying, you know, they're surprised or they didn't realize. So democracy is a muscle and the rules of elections are enacted not you know when most people are paying attention because you know you're paying attention in October and November maybe uh, you need to be paying attention in January and February as well to to those laws as they're introduced. Yeah, and and there was a, a friend of mine who is a poll worker, and this is kind of connected. And I just spoke with her today, and she said that they have been given instructions that during the election, if anybody asks them to explain Amendment One or Amendment Two they are supposed to say nothing, absolutely nothing. And the thing is, Amendment 1 changes, drastically changes how laws are made in Frankfurt because it extends the cycle, the time that they're in Frankfurt, to all year. And apparently, from what I heard, that means that you never really know when a bill is going to come up. It could come up any time throughout the 12 months. And so it kind of muddies the waters on how people can even find out what's being discussed and and, and what's up for voting. So I just wonder about that. It seems sometimes that we're deliberately kept in ignorance. But anyway, I wanted one more question about our community radio station, since you talked about that. And media, the media has a role to play. And I liked your idea that we could be partnering with either other media or other advocacy groups. And I was wondering if you had any comments on that, how what we could be doing here at our radio station. Well, I think it is really important to um, to be connected to the community, you know, to connect and make you know partnerships with the local newspapers. Too many of, of our local newspapers are being bought up by big corporations and they're declining in, in ad revenue uh, and in subscriptions. We need to double down on our commitment to local journalism because they are the ones that are providing transparency to local and state government. I get very frustrated when I'm, I'm online and I share an important local news story and people complain that it's behind a paywall. It's like, you know, reporters need to make money too. They need to make a living. And, you know, community radio stations can partner with local newspapers, but we need to, to create a culture in our society where we trust the local news uh, once again. Yeah. There was one other thing I wanted to bring up, the voter registration card that everybody's supposed to fill out or do it online. The thing that has me a little concerned, and I know this is true with college students who are extremely concerned about this, it says, if anything you say is untrue, you can be convicted and fined up to $500 or jailed up to 12 months. And you must you must swear that, and the bottom 
item is, I do not claim the right to vote anywhere outside of Kentucky. And that seems r rather confusing to me because so many college students, they do have the right to vote in another state or another part of Kentucky, but they're here in Louisville. And if they don't vote here, they're not going to vote. Yeah, so it's, it's fine to fill out that form. And your present intention is that you don't declare the right to vote somebody somewhere else. I mean, I don't think we want someone, a college student in Louisville voting in Louisville and back in their home county. I don't think anyone thinks that that would be fair. By signing that, you're not saying that I'm still, it's okay that you were registered in another place. Um, and in fact, the state's voter rolls will, you know, the state's counties talk to each other to take, you know, you register in one place, you get taken off the rolls from another place. So you, you're signing that your present intentions by, by filling out the voter registration form is to register in the new place you're registering and that you're not also declaring a right to vote in another place at the present time. So you will not get convicted of any crime. <laughs> well, I'm not a licensed Kentucky lawyer. I'm not a criminal lawyer. I can tell you that the intent of that form is not to try to make someone a criminal uh -huh. for registering in the new place where they're currently living. You just can't have the intention of voting as well in your home place. You can only vote in one yeah. place. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think it all has to do with the tenses, present, future, and past, which is uh, And I also think that, I mean, what prosecutor is going to go after a college kid for registering in Louisville when that's where they're living when they're not trying to vote anywhere else? And they say, this is where my current residence is. So right. um, yeah. this, that, that to me is, is perhaps uh, too fine of a reading uh, uh, unnecessarily. Okay, good. By the way, I'm not giving, but I'm not giving legal advice. Uh, uh -huh. But that, that's yeah. my of what you just said. Yeah, it is rather confusing though, and I, I have heard some concern about it. So there was somebody that wanted to know if you had heard of any reports of poll workers receiving any threats. I think that's been a problem all over the country. That it's really unfortunate. There's this election workers, county clerks, and poll workers. There's a, a real attack on the structures of democracy, and um, we can't tolerate that. It's it's really terrible. And poll workers uh, saved the 2020 election, uh, and election officials saved the 2020 election by running a smooth election under unprecedented pressure. And uh, and and they're American heroes, and they shouldn't be attacked. Well, I want to thank you, Professor Douglas, for joining us today. It's been very enlightening for me. And I also wanted to invite you to mention your book again and how people can get a hold of it. Sure. It's called Vote for Us or Vote for US. It's available all the places books are sold, Amazon, your local bookshop, et cetera. Very good. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Joshua Douglas, professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law talking about his most recent book, Vote for U.S., or Vote for Us, as he puts it, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. And now for a little freewheeling conversation broadly on elections and democracies with my co-host, Victoria Strange, and me. And I would be derelict in my duties if I did not preface this with a reminder that the following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming, and the views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may email us at wfmp.louisville at gmail.com. And we are recording this on Saturday, 
the 5th of November, so we cannot speak to election results, but we can talk about elections in general and threats to our democratic process. Yes, and actually, I, like probably millions of Americans, am on pins and needles about the upcoming election because I agree with so many other so many other people who you hear interviewed on television or just the public polling that's been done saying that threats to our democracy are an issue of top concern and I think that's a good thing I think it's a good thing that the American people have woken up to that fact but sadly and maybe Ruth you can elaborate on this a little there are some threats to our democratic process that are sort of baked into the system. And I think there's sort of five major topics we could touch on there. Mm -hmm. Gerrymandering, the Electoral College, the way that certain states in the country were created, Mm -hmm. no votes for the District of Columbia or for Puerto Rico, which together have millions of people. And the filibuster. So we don't know if we'll get to all of those in this episode, but we can continue the discussion after the election. And then, of course, the restrictions, the latest restrictions that the Republicans have placed on voting. Right. And I'm taking some of this information from an article that you showed me. <laughs> I love the New what Yorker. Was it from the New Yorker by Louis Menand called uh, Drawing Lines our undemocratic democracy, so he goes back into our history, but he starts out by talking about the latest restrictions. For example, in Florida, it's illegal to offer water to someone standing in line to vote. That just seems nutty to me. I mean, so cruel. And if you're standing in line for hours to vote, there's already a problem. And the problem is that there are not enough polling places or there are not enough voting machines. And that seems to happen in neighborhoods that tend to vote Democratic, in inner city neighborhoods, in big metropolises, if that's the right word. Drop boxes in 2020, Texas limited the number of ballot drop-off locations to one per county, ensuring that Loving County, the home of 57 people, has the same number of drop-off locations as Harris County, which includes Houston and has 4.7 million people. Does that sound fair? (laughs) Absolutely not. And that, you know, the whole conspiracy theory revolving around drop boxes and mail-in ballots Mm -hmm. was just ginned up no end in the 2020 election, months before it. I mean, we can all remember that Trump and other Republicans were saying if he didn't win, it was because the election was was rigged and these mail-in ballots were fraudulent and... It, there's absolutely no evidence None. of that in the in the real world. As a matter of fact, the only evidence I think that we have so far shows that drop boxes and mail-in are more secure yes. than polling stations and voting machines. And in fact, there are some states where I believe the only way you can vote yes. is by mail-in That's ballot. Right. In Washington, and, and as a matter of fact, I recommend that you guys, anyone that out there, go to forwardradio.org, look up election connection under programs, and then check out a program that I did interviewing the Secretary of State, who happens to be a Republican, of Washington, of the state of Washington. And that is universal mail-in. 
and they got an award for being the most secure election voting system in the entire country. That's amazing so, and wonderful. And I don't know why any American would be opposed to making access to the ballot easier for all American citizens right. who are eligible to vote. Right. What a boon to disabled people. Yeah. You know. Or people like my dad, who's in his late 90s. I mean, it's much easier for him to fill out a ballot in the comfort of his home and mail it in mm -hmm. than to go to a polling place. Right. Even though the Senate is split 50-50. And we're talking about the U.S. Senate, right? The U.S. Right now. Senate right now. Mm -hmm. According to this article in The New Yorker, Democratic senators represent 42 million more people than Republican senators do. And Eric Holder, former attorney general, points out in his book, Our Unfinished March, that the Senate is lopsided. Half the population today is represented by 18 senators. Wow. And the other half by 82 senators. Does wow. that make Does, sense? <laughs> no, it seems extremely unbalanced. Yeah. And I, I think another key thing that people are noticing, I'm sure, in all across the country, is that the policies that the majority of American people favor, like for, just to take one, universal background checks for gun purchases, which has some huge amount of support, 80 plus percent, maybe even closer to 90 percent across the American public, can't get through Congress. And that's a key reason why it can't, because there are senators who are representing a minority of American citizens mm -hmm. who know that their base might desert them if they vote for a bill like that, even though it's the most common sense thing there could be. Mm -hmm. So they hold the line or they filibuster the bill, and that's the end of it in the Senate. And the filibuster is another thing we could talk about at some point. But anyway, I believe that's pretty much a part of this anti-democratic stuff that's kind of baked into our system. Yeah, and the fact that there's so much money involved. I just saw on the news hour last night, they were talking about two candidates running in. It was the state where the Parkland murders happened. Oh, that was Florida. Parkland Junior High. All yeah. those murders. And... Um, the Republican candidate was mum, wouldn't say a word. About gun laws? When they asked him, and the next day after his interview, he received a big, huge check from the NRA. Yes. So our politics is contaminated with big money. No kidding. And and so that's another topic that isn't, wasn't on our list. But, well, it's, yeah. but it's true. It's the decision by the Supreme Court, which was the Citizens United decision, which essentially boils down to corporations are people, and we can't limit their speech, <laughs> So, and that money is speech. So that tells you that if you don't have a lot of money and power, and you have much less influence on the political process, the only influence you have is your vote. And the steps that have been taken, especially over the last few years, to limit people's access to the ballot box is just anti-democratic. That's all there is to it. So we're going to talk now a little bit about gerrymandering. Which is um, an interesting term, and it stems from the name of the governor of Massachusetts back in the early 1800s. His name was Elbridge Gary, 
G-E-R-R-Y, but apparently it's okay to say gerrymandering <laughs> these days. He approved a district that was drawn for the specific purpose of giving one party a majority in the Massachusetts Senate, and this was in the election of 1812. So his name has become synonymous with that practice of drawing legislative districts so that you ensure, more or less, that one party is going to win that district. It's, it's going to be very, very difficult for the other party to win. And that practice apparently started even before we became the United States. The whole point of gerrymandering is to pack as many of your voters into one district. That's called packing, to make sure that district will have enough voters to be carried by your party. And the other practice is generally known as cracking. So cracking and packing. Cracking is when you split the voters in a district into several different adjacent districts. To so dilute. To dilute the power of okay. the opposing party. Right, and make your party more competitive in that district. Yes. Yeah. And I think this is a really terrible practice, and it's so ingrained. You know, we saw the effects of it this year in, in Kentucky. The redistricting, uh, because of the 2020 census, every 10 years the census is taken, and that's when redistricting occurs. And generally, the party that has the power in the state legislature at that point gets to sort of lock in their power for the next 10 years until the next census is taken. So yeah. it's really kind of a crazy system and doesn't seem very democratic to me. I believe that one of the provisions in the John Lewis Voting Rights Act which the House passed and which, of course, stalled in the Senate, was to eliminate partisan gerrymandering. And I know there's some states, I can't think which ones right offhand, that have their districts drawn by an independent uh, panel, an yeah. independent commission that draws the district lines without regard the to, article mentioned New York. Yeah. New York does that. And, and, and they overturned the districts that the Democrats submitted. Yes, yes. Of course, the same thing happened in, was it Texas? But they just ignored the court order to redraw the districts, which were supposedly unconstitutionally created to dilute the power of the Democrats and increase the Isn't power of the Republicans. the case now in Kentucky, or is it? where they have brought it to the Kentucky Supreme Court the way that we just had our districts redistricted. Yeah, I maybe so, because didn't they, especially in the Louisville area, I'm thinking they redistricted, it's a hard word to say, such that there would be two Democratic representatives in the same district now, so that one of them would have to either drop out or they'd have to battle each other in a primary. Right, that did happen. And yeah. was it, wasn't it Democratic women? <laughs> <I'm not. laughs> anyway, I wish I had more information on that, but I know that was, yeah. that was an issue, and it may very well be working its way through the state courts right now. And another thing that you might talk about, too, is the counting of prisoners in rural areas because that's where most of the prisons are and those prisoners do not have the right to vote. But during the 10-year census, they count those prisoners as being residents of that area where they are in prison. Even though the vast majority of them come from metropolitan areas, they are counted as rural residents. I think there was 
some kind of statistic on that in the New Yorker article, about 70% of our prisons in the United States are in rural areas, which probably means a preponderance of them are in red areas. That's fascinating. Yeah. So they count as residents, which boosts their um, population base for being, you know, assigned how many representatives you have in the House, exactly. in the U.S. House. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, those people who are counted as residents can't even vote. And it brings back the history of right after the Civil War, when the southern states were allowed to count their former slaves as, as people, and then they disenfranchised them and didn't allow them to vote. Unbelievable. <laughs> were they allowed to count them as a whole person instead of yes. just three-fifths of a person, which was, yes. which was a compromise that was made as they were drafting the Constitution? Yes. Yeah. There are some really horrifying parts of our history. <laughs> just right, right. <laughs> it makes you wonder how much of a democracy we really have. Yes. But I really encourage people to read Professor Douglas's book because it has a lot of good examples of, of new trends that are happening in the country and new movements across the country that are trying to change that and, and make voting more accessible rather than less. That's, that's wonderful to hear. And I know there's a movement across the country, and I, I'm trying to remember if this is organized by public citizen or common cause. Well, I know this has been perhaps uh, sort of free-flowing and um, not exactly coherent <laughs> discussion, <laughs> but I hope we've provided some, some bits of information that are useful and uh, we would love to talk in more detail about the influence of dark money on our politics. And it's not just our politics here in the United States. It's politics around the world. It, more than a handful, but not that many people with enough wealth to be very influential power brokers exactly. around the world. And, you know, Vladimir Putin is one, and his the oligarchs that he allows to prosper under him are others. We've got people like that in the United States, too, and I won't name names, but... Well, I will. <laughs> <laughs> Al Manafort, for yes. example, who is an American, and actually he was um, convicted of, what was it? Not registering as a foreign Not agent? Not registering as a foreign agent because he was lobbying for other countries. He was lobbying for... Yanukovych, mm -hmm. the former president of Ukraine. Yes, who was basically a Russian stooge. He was a Russian <laughs> stooge who killed his own people. He mm -hmm. killed many, many of his own protesters, and he ended up fleeing, uh, fleeing Ukraine to into Russia. Russia. Yeah, but Manafort started out as a political consultant to dictators all over the world, including together with. Roger Stone. Together with Roger Stone, yes. <laughs> and Lee Atwater, if people remember him. Anyway, he's and, he's gone now. He's deceased. But And also met one of Manafort's partners who was in charge of the Ukraine office of Manafort's business, his consulting business, was this Russian guy. He was actually born in, in Soviet Ukraine, but mm -hmm. he was Russian, named Konstantin Kalimnik. Kalimnik. And if that name is familiar to you, it's because you were reading news reports back during the um, Trump years of Paul Manafort meeting Mr. Kalimnik in a cigar bar in the building 
in New York City that's owned by Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law. Sort of a fancy, dark-paneled, velvet-curtain room where you can have some fine whiskey and scotch and the finest cigars. (laughs) It's a perfect setting for this. Where Manafort met with Kalimnik and turned over detailed polling data from Trump's campaign. And there is yeah. no way, I think, that that should be viewed as some innocent mm-hmm. act. I can't imagine that if, say, someone from Hillary Clinton's campaign had met with a person who U.S. intelligence has identified as a Russian agent, that yes. that wouldn't be cause for alarm. Yes. And um, anyway, this is a really interesting yeah tangled web that is... They should make a movie of it someday. Yes, that's actually linked to the current crisis in Ukraine, the war that yes. Russia launched against Ukraine. Yes. And lest you forget, this is the same Paul Manafort who was Trump's campaign manager and who prior to that had been paid millions of dollars by Russian oligarchs to run Yanukovych's campaign. And when Yanukovych won the election in 2010, Manafort became his foreign policy advisor. Now, according to Jim Ruttenberg in his New York Times article of November 2nd, 2022, Yanukovych amassed a great amount of wealth while in office by plundering public funds. And it was Manafort who lobbied in Washington to prevent sanctions against Yanukovych over his jailing of political opponents. And I think people would be really interested to follow all the threads of this story, although it is complex. It is convoluted. But we're hoping that we can entice you to listen to uh, additional shows we're going to record to talk about all this. It's very fascinating. And if you want to read a quickie summary of this whole Ukrainian mess. It was in an article in the New York Times on November the 2nd, 2022, written by Jim Rutenberg, and it's called The Untold Story of Russia Gate and the Road to War in Ukraine. Yes, I I think it was in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. It's a wonderful article. It, it'll take a little while to read it because it goes into detail. It does but... go into great detail, and, and it, it's, just, it's just like an incredible mystery novel. Oh, it is. And he says in this article that, that he reviewed hundreds of pages of documents produced by investigators for the Robert Mueller investigation, the Republican-led Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, from impeachment hearing transcripts, Russiagate memoirs, and from interviews with nearly 50 people in the United States and Ukraine, including four hour-long conversations with Manafort himself. Fascinating. So, yes. yes, it's a great read, and it maybe is. we can talk about it in a, in a, future. In a future episode yes. after the election. <laughs> Fingers crossed for Tuesday, everyone. And that's it for this week's Election Connection. Thanks to all of you listeners and supporters of WFMP 106.5 FM, your all-volunteer radio station. And also thank you to all of you folks out there who have been working mightily to protect and strengthen our democratic process. Take good care 